This podcast is produced by Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. We would love to have you join us at one of our church services on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. Today's episode features a speech from a 2022 family conference hosted by the British Reformed Fellowship, the topic of which was union with Jesus Christ. We hope you are edified by this content. One of the benefits of these conferences, and not the least, has very much to do with the topic of this conference, which is union with Christ. These conferences bring together men and women who possess union or oneness in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as this gospel is preached and proclaimed in the Bible and as this gospel is confessed in the Reformed and Presbyterian creeds. By virtue of our union at these conferences, we enjoy communion with each other, the fellowship that results from our oneness with each other. For all of us, the enjoyment of this communion is dear. That's especially the case for those who when this conference is over, must go back to places where there is not in a true church the kind of communion that he or she has enjoyed at this conference. They lack such communion wherever they live. The topic of our conference this time, I say, is the biblical truth that is the source of our sweet fellowship, union with Jesus Christ. As I trust will become abundantly evident from the speeches, the topic of this conference does not suffer in comparison with the subjects of previous conferences. Over the last 30 years or so, we have had a great number of weighty, significant, edifying subjects out of the Holy Scripture. I'd like to see a list of the subjects that we have had and heard at all of the previous conferences. I'm sure that Mary will get on that before this conference is over. But this conference topic does not suffer in comparison with any of the subjects that we have had at these conferences before. This is not only my judgment, that is my judgment about the importance of the topic we have at this conference, but it is also the judgment of renowned theologians and churchmen. Although John Calvin did not use the words union with Christ when he was saying or writing what I'm going to quote from him, he was in fact referring to this truth when he wrote that for our salvation, Jesus Christ cannot remain outside of us. That's his word, outside of us. If we are to be saved, Jesus Christ himself must become ours by being united with us. Now I quote Calvin. As long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. End of quote. Calvin then added, I quote, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us, end of quote. There's no salvation for you or for me if Christ remains outside of us, even though he is outside of us hanging on a tree, or even though he may be outside of us in this room speaking to us for salvation He must dwell within us. That's from the Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 1, Section 1. That's how Calvin begins his treatment of the doctrine of salvation. Christ must dwell in us. Arthur W. Pink agreed. He wrote that, quote, The subject of spiritual union with Christ is the most important, the most profound, and yet the most blessed of any that is set forth in the sacred scriptures. That's from his work, Spiritual Union 
and communion with Christ. And then Pink added a complaint that this truth is not acknowledged the way it ought to be. As I will demonstrate in this speech, union with Christ is the basic Christian experience and the motive of the Christian life of holiness. Union with Christ is not only salvation, but it's also specifically the basic experience that you and I ought to have as Christians. And it is also a powerful motive, if not the most powerful motive, for living the Christian life to which you and I are called. It falls to me at this conference to give the introductory lecture, and this I will do as follows. I will explain what union with Christ is. That, of course, is foundational. I will contend, then, that the essence of union with Christ is the covenant of grace. Think union with Christ, and you must think the covenant of grace. And if you do not think the biblical reality of the covenant of grace, you have not arrived at union with Christ. And then third and finally, I will demonstrate how we experience union with Christ and how we are called to express union with Christ. We begin then with what union is. God helps us to understand somewhat union with Christ by representing it, especially by the union of head and body, our physical head and physical body, and by the union of husband and wife in marriage. God compares union with Christ to our head and body in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, which we have just read. And he compares it to the relationship of a husband and wife in Ephesians 5, which we have also just read. In light of these figures, Union with Christ is such a close relationship between two distinct entities or things, head and body, or persons, husband and wife, that the two are or become one. Union with Christ is that you and Christ become one. How you become one with Christ I will set forth a little later. But that's what it is. That's true of the human head and body. They are one physical reality. We have a hard time separating, even in our thinking, our physical head from our physical body. This is true also of husband and wife. In marriage they become one flesh, as God himself pronounced in Genesis 2 verse 24. Union is such a oneness of two persons or entities that the two co-inhere. And I mean by that simply that they share in each other's life. True union, and we're talking here about union with Christ and the church, is such that the one is in the other so that each shares in the life of the other. Union is not merely that two entities or persons are next to each other, but it consists of this, that they are in each other. With regard to union with Christ, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Now this is especially illustrated by the union of a husband and wife. And I'm not referring only to the sexual expression, although that's foundational to it, but I'm referring also to the fact that the union of Christ and the church consists in this, that we share in each other's life. In his own way, Christ shared in our life. And when we are united to Christ, we share in his life. That's union. And yet, and this is of great importance, especially in light of some things that are being said today falsely about union with Christ, the two are distinct realities or persons and they remain distinct realities or persons. 
in union, the two do not merge into a third thing, as if each loses its identity in the other. That's true of the figures that the Bible uses, head and body, first of all. The union of head and body is very close. The one is in the other, in a way, but the head remains a head, and we have no mistake in identifying the head, and the body remains a body. In marriage, there's a very close relationship that comes to its supreme expression in the sexual activity and relationship. But the husband remains the husband, and the wife remains the wife. That's the way it is also with regard to the union of Christ and us. Christ does not share his being with us, nor do we lose our human being in him. Christ remains Jesus Christ, and we remain the humans that we are and always shall be. As is or should be true in marriage, each remains personally distinct. Nor does the one, the husband usually, demand that the other, the wife usually, surrender herself to him in such a way that he absorbs her. She loses her identity in him. That's not the marriage relationship, that's abuse and tyranny. And husbands especially, I forewarn, can be guilty of this. In my 25 years of active pastoral ministry, I have had to deal with this. Troubles in a marriage, serious troubles in a marriage, which although the husband identified as the failure and refusal of his wife to submit to him, actually was the sin of the husband's attempting to absorb the woman, deprive her of her own identity and personality, swallow her up in himself, as it were, so that she remained an empty shell. Part of the wonder of the union of Christ and us is that we and Christ remain distinct. He remains distinctly the Christ, and you remain distinctly the human being that you are. You are not Christ, and you never will become Christ, and you ought not to aspire to become Christ. That is not the nature of the union of Christ with you and with me. The union is the oneness of two who are and remain two. If, say, union was that Christ swallowed us up, there would no longer be communion, union with, but only sameness. And that's not the wonder of the work of God and the salvation of the covenant. By virtue of the intimate closeness of the two, the condition or behavior of the one affects the other for good or ill. This now is something important about our union with Christ. So close is that union that the behavior of the one affects the other. The behavior of Christ affects you tremendously, but your your behavior also, in a certain way, affects Christ, and necessarily so, because we are intimately related to each other. That's true of the earthly figures that the Bible employs, which we have looked at. If the head of the body behaves wisely, the body profits. Whereas if your head makes a foolish decision, that's not only going to affect your head adversely, it's undoubtedly also going to affect your body adversely. If the head makes a foolish decision, let's say to run through a red light at however many miles an hour is possible in this country, the accident is going to affect the body as well as the head. Paul points this out in Ephesians 5 verses 28 and 29. As part of his comparison of marriage with the human head and body, he says, who loves his wife as his body, loves himself as the head of that body. And one who hates his wife hates himself. 
Bad husbands, bad wives too, but I'm talking about bad husbands here, are very foolish. When they treat their wife cruelly or brutally or abuse their wife, not only are they hurting her, they're also hurting themselves. The relationship and attitude of the wife towards the husband is going to reflect the evil treatment he gives her. And his marriage is not going to be the lovely, pleasant, delightful relationship that it ought to be. A man who loves his wife is loving himself. It's good for him himself that he lives rightly with his wife in marriage. Such is the teaching of the Bible. It works the other way around as well. If the body is sick, the head also will suffer. If you're sick, especially seriously sick, you don't say, my body is ill. You say, I am ill. Your head is as ill as your body in its own way. Similarly, if a wife is foolish, she will trouble not only herself, but also her husband. That's brought out in a vivid way in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul there is dealing with division in the church. We call it schism today. One group said it was allied with Peter. The other said it was allied with Paul. The other said it was allied with who knows what. And the apostle asks a penetrating question that ought to have brought the Corinthians to repentance. Is Christ divided? You who are splitting the church into all kinds of factions and groups, what you really are doing is dividing Christ. Now they can't get at Christ in heaven, of course. Nevertheless, Christ is so identified with his church that to be guilty of schism in the church reflects badly on Christ before the whole watching world. Their Christ is like this, the world says. A Christ of division and schism and inner fighting. So even with regard to the spiritual reality of the union of Christ and the church, for the wife, the church to behave herself badly injures Christ and that it brings reproach upon Jesus Christ. Such is the oneness of the union of Christ and the church. Now these earthly unions, marriage and the human head and body, were created by God to picture the union of Christ and the church. We have the wrong idea about that. We think of it this way. In the beginning, when God created everything, he made man as a head and a body, the human as a head and a body. And he also created humanity to live in marriage, a husband and a wife. After he had done that, God said to himself, Now, these would be good pictures of the coming union of Jesus Christ and the church. That's not how it went. God from the beginning planned the union of Christ and the church, and he made us humans with a head and body so that that relationship of head and body could be a reflection and picture of the coming union of Christ and the church. And God made the human race to live in marriage as a husband and wife in order that that would picture more or less clearly and powerfully the coming relationship between Christ and the church. What I'm saying is this. The real head and body are not your physical head and body or mine. The real head and body are Christ and the church. The real marriage, of which your marriage and mine are only pale reflections, is the marriage of Jesus Christ and the church. In the light of this, and especially in light of the biblical figures or pictures of union with Christ and the church, I can examine with you what union with Christ actually is. At the very outset, I acknowledge that our union with Christ is mysterious. Mysterious in the sense that we cannot comprehend it. We deal tonight with an incomprehensible wonder. The wonder of our salvation. Union with Christ is a wonder surpassing our understanding. Something like the two natures of Jesus Christ or the union of the three persons and the Godhead. We experience union with Christ 
especially at certain times, under a sermon, or reading the Bible, or praying, or at the Lord's Supper, or reading a good book, we experience union with Christ keenly, but we never understand it fully. I do not think we ever will, not even in glory. As eternity rolls by, we will understand it more deeply, but we will never comprehend the union of Christ and the church. Still, biblical revelation enables us to know some important things about union with Christ. Union with Christ is such a close relationship with Jesus that he is in us and, he, and we are in him. Union is more than that we come close to each other in an embrace with each other. If Jesus Christ were in this room and invited me to sit on his lap and put my arms around him and he put his arms around me, that would still not do justice to the union with Christ that is a reality in our life. Union is not that he's near us or by us or with us, but union is that he is in us. More than 70 times or more, the New Testament states that we are in Christ. In addition to that, many times it states that Christ is in us. So close is the relationship that the Bible dares to identify Christ with us, the church, and the church with him. Now to be identified with each other is different from being swallowed up in each other, losing our reality in each other, but we are identified with each other. I appeal first of all to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. I need not read that. I can describe the passage to you. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, the apostle is describing the relationship of the members of the church with each other. He's addressing a topic that is very important in 1 Corinthians because of the division in the church. Describing the life of the members of the church to the relationship of the members of the human earthly body, head, hands, arms, and so on. After he has said that the each has, has its place, and each has its function, that they cooperate with each other, he concludes, so also is, and you would expect him to say, so also is the church. Because that's his subject. He's been comparing, comparing the relationship of the members of the church to the relationship of the members of the human body. But he doesn't say that. Rather, he says, so also is Christ. He identifies the church with Christ. He identifies Christ with the church. Christ is identified with the church so that the relationship of the members of the church with each other reflects on their relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of the union of Christ with the church, he identifies the church as Christ. Christ himself identifies the church with himself in Acts 9 verse 4. That's the well-known passage of the conversion of Paul on the, on the Damascus road. He asked of Paul, who was at that time the persecuting Saul, a question, didn't he? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou the church? You know better. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Touch the church and you touch me. That's unavoidable because of the intimate relationship of Christ and his church. Saul was persecuting him. That's something that enemies of the church ignore at their peril, their eternal peril. 
touch the church of Jesus Christ adversely and you're touching adversely the head and Lord of the church. And such will answer for it. You have the same reality in the description of the final judgment in Matthew 25 verses 31 and following. At the great assizes of the final judgment, the question, or the, not the question, but the judgment will be leveled. And as much as you have helped one of mine, you have helped me. That's what Jesus the judge will say. If you fed the least of my brethren, you fed me. If you gave drink to a member of the church, you gave drink to me. Such is the close connection of Christ and the church that he identifies himself with the church. And he brings out the opposite as well. If you refuse to help one of mine, you refuse to help me. If you laid a bad hand on one of mine, you laid a bad hand upon me. That's identification because of the close connection and relationship of Christ and the church. As usual, Martin Luther expressed this close relationship of the union of Christ and the church in his own peculiar vivid style. I wonder of late whether I ever give a speech without quoting Martin Luther, but he's fitting here. He's commenting on Ephesians 5, the great chapter on marriage. Because he was a good exegete of the scriptures, he immediately turns his attention to the real marriage, the marriage of Christ and the church. And he expresses the intimate relation of Christ and the church this way. I quote him, This rich and divine bridegroom Christ marries this poor, wicked harlot, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. The divine, wealthy bridegroom in the marriage to the church takes the poor, wicked harlot to himself <coughs> with all her evil, making himself responsible for that evil and sharing with her all his goodness. The effect of this marital union, according to Luther, is that all that is his becomes ours Righteousness, holiness, life, and salvation, because all that is ours has become his. Don't miss that. All that is ours becomes his. Sin, death, damnation, and hell. Such is the relationship that we share in each other's life. He shared in our sin and death and damnation so that he could give us to share in his righteousness, life, and eternal salvation. In the second place, concerning the nature of the union with Christ, it's a spiritual union. Now, I think there's a danger that when I say spiritual, spiritual relationship, almost involuntarily we dismiss that as unreal in our notion that the only thing that is real or importantly real is something that is earthly. But to say that the relationship of Christ and us is spiritual is not to dismiss it as unreal, but rather to claim for it the highest and most important reality. The union of Christ and the church is a union which is the Holy Spirit. Notice I did not say it's a relationship that is caused by the Holy Spirit, although that's true. But the union of Christ and you and me is the Holy Spirit himself. He is the union. God the Holy Spirit is the union of Christ and the church. Christ is in us by his Spirit. This indwelling, indwelling Spirit engrafts us into Christ. In this regard, it's helpful to have a right doctrine of the Holy Spirit as concerns the relationship of the human and divine nature of Jesus and as regards the relationship of God the Father and God the Son in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit is that union wherever he appears. This is what Calvin meant by the mystical union. 
Calvin described the union of Christ and the church as a mystical union. He meant by that that it's a union consisting of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Pink meant when he called that union the vital union. He meant by vital union, the union that is the Holy Spirit, the living Spirit of God himself. The Spirit of Jesus Christ is in heaven. He comes into each of us, thus bringing Christ into us and uniting us with Jesus Christ so that Christ and we are one. In a sense, therefore, if you are an elect believer, you are already in heaven. You not only look forward to going there in your soul and one day in your body as well, but you are there. Nothing less than this is meant by the union of Christ and the church. The Spirit engrafts you into Christ. He takes you in himself into heaven and unites you to Jesus Christ. That's a union with Christ that never will be broken and assures you also of going to heaven eternally in the day of Christ. Union with Christ is not a physical union. It's not a physical union in the Lord's Supper. and It's not physical in the subject we're addressing tonight. But what's important to notice is that the Spirit brings to us Jesus Christ himself. The Spirit does not bring to us only the blessings of salvation that are in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, holiness, peace, joy, and all the rest, although he does that. But when the Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ, he brings us Jesus Christ himself. And with Jesus Christ, all the blessings of salvation that are in Jesus Christ. You cannot have the blessings of salvation, not the least of them, apart from having Jesus Christ himself, in whom those blessings are to be found. Now the Reformed faith, when it conducts itself the way it ought to, and proclaims and confesses as it should, is a faith that does justice to union with Christ. Union with Christ is the theology of the Reformed faith. Union with Christ is its spiritual life and practice. I leave here for the other speaker how union with Christ is at the heart of election and at the heart of the atonement. And I concern myself with the saving work of God within us. I'm going to be very brief here so that I do not presume upon your time or your energies. What I have to say now, very briefly, will come out if the speeches are again published in the influential little books that the British Reform Fellowship publishes at the end of every conference. But let me briefly touch on the main elements of the justice that the Reformed faith does to union with Christ. The Reformed faith does justice to union with Christ, first of all, by knowing and confessing that faith itself is union with Christ. As the Heidelberg Catechism teaches in question 20, faith is not only or even first of all knowing Christ and trusting in Christ, but faith is engrafting into him, becoming one with him or union with him. Engrafting in farming is such a uniting of an otherwise dead branch into the vine as affects a living relationship of the branch and the vine. And grafting makes the dead branch part of the living vine so that that dead branch now shares in the life of the living vine and becomes alive itself. That's faith, according to the Reformed faith. It's not the cheap superficial confession of Christ or decision for Christ that much of so-called evangelical Christianity makes it. But faith is the rich, deep, profound relationship of the believer with Jesus Christ. <coughs> also, according to the Reformed faith, preaching has to do very much with union with Christ. Preaching, according to the Reformed faith, is not 
a man speaking a learned lecture or uttering a profound call, but preaching is the living voice of Jesus Christ to his people. In every sermon, the reality of that sermon is that the lover, Jesus Christ, calls the beloved, the church, and each true and living member of the church into himself so that there is relationship, intimate relationship between the lover and the beloved. As far as the content of every sermon is concerned, the substance of every sermon, I'm quoting now the Westminster Confession of Faith, the substance of every sermon is Jesus Christ. At every service of worship, the Reformed believers are addressed with the message of Jesus Christ himself that implies union with Jesus Christ. The gospel does not merely talk about Christ. The gospel presents Christ himself and then presents Christ himself in such a living way that he embraces his own and by his grace his own embrace him. As far as the sacraments are concerned, you'll notice I'm really referring to the three marks of the true church, preaching, sacraments, and pretty soon excommunication or discipline. As far as the sacraments are concerned, it's obvious to everyone, and I need not belabor it, that the meaning of the Lord's Supper is union with Christ. We eat and drink Christ's body and blood. There's a vivid picture of Christ being in us and sharing with us himself and all of the salvation that is in him. But with regard to baptism, I'm going to take a little more time to indicate that also what you must think about with regard to your baptism is union with Christ. And I mean that when you think about your baptism. We who have been baptized as children, even infants, may have the weakness that we forget about our baptism when we were infants. That happened when we were unconscious and we don't make much of that baptism. We don't rely upon the essence of baptism regarding our experience of salvation. That's a danger. And I want to address that danger now. The reality of infant baptism is union with Christ. We ought to think about our baptism as infants, often, even every day, and especially at certain times when we are tempted so that our response to temptation, even desirable temptation, is, I cannot, I was baptized. And sometimes when we are depressed and discouraged, we ought to fall back upon our baptism as well. It's wonderfully important with regard to Martin Luther that that great man of God was troubled almost all his life long by periods of doubt and depression. His wife, Katie, a good help, called those spells of her, her husband Luther's black devils. Those would be moods during which he could not eat or sleep or work. A classic case of depression except for the fact that it usually had spiritual overtones. He was troubled by his sins. He was doubtful whether even the Lord Jesus Christ could save such a great sinner as he knew himself to be from his sins. And then what did he do? He didn't call in a counselor. And I'm not criticizing calling in a Christian counselor, but he didn't do that. He didn't open up a bottle of whiskey and drink himself insensible. Didn't fall back on drugs if they had drugs in those days. But this is what he did. Went to his kitchen table with a piece of chalk and wrote on the table with that chalk, Baptismus sum. Baptismus sum, Latin for, I have been baptized. That became a means of grace to him in his old age to speak to him about the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that took away his sins so that all his doubts and fears should be dispelled. And they were dispelled as God honored his own sacrament of baptism. I don't know whether I ever did that as a pastor. I think I did that in other words, but that's what we ought to tell some people who are de depressed, especially 
if their depression has a spiritual cause. Get a piece of chalk, sit down by your kitchen table and write on your kitchen table, I have been baptized, washed clean of all my sins, united to Jesus Christ. And the baptism formula helps us in that regard. I'm referring to what we read in Matthew 8, 28, where Jesus tells the disciples, go into all the world and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I want to call attention to the little preposition translated in, in the King James Version. Now one of the benefits of this class will be a little instruction in the Greek language. It's amazing what benefits you get from these meetings of the British Reformed Fellowship. Here's a little Greek. I'm doing that because this is important for my subject tonight and for your edification and mine. The Greek word that actually appears in Matthew 28 and that is translated in is not the normal word in Greek for in, baptizing them in the name of the Father. But the word, the preposition that is used is a different preposition. It's the preposition ace. I would transliterate as E-I-S, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The meaning, the reality of baptism, what baptism ought to speak to us of is that Christ takes us from outside of himself and brings us into himself, baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that name is Jesus. We're outside as we come into the world by nature, conceived and born in sin. We need to be brought into Christ, and that's what baptism does as a sacramental sign and as a sacramental power of Jesus himself. The difference is that we could say that prior to our meeting tonight, we all were in the foyer. But being in the foyer, we were outside of this meeting room. What happened was that a bell brought us into this room, from outside into this room. So it is, as far as the meaning is concerned, and the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit as he uses the sacrament of baptism with regard to the sacrament of baptism. We are united to the name of Jesus Christ, one with him in the union with Christ. I'll have more to say about that when the book is published, I trust. All of the Reformed faith centers on union with Christ. The preaching, the sacraments, but that's also true with regard to the third mark of the true church. I'm referring, of course, to discipline. It belongs to Christian discipline that a member who impenitently continues in his sin is excommunicated. He's set outside of the fellowship of the body of Christ, and the meaning is that he is cut off from the fellowship of Christ himself. The Reformed churches have a form of excommunication and, dis and that form describes excommunication as being cut off from, quote, the fellowship of Christ, end of quote. And therefore also from all, quote, spiritual blessings and benefits, end of quote, that are in Christ. When one is excommunicated or cut off from the church, the meaning is that he is cut off from fellowship with Christ. What's the implication of that? that as a good and lively member of the church, he is in fellowship with Jesus Christ, so that even the third mark of the true church, Christian discipline, speaks of union with Christ. So important is our subject at the conference tonight, union with Christ. Now given that importance of union with Christ, it is regrettable that the Reformed and Presbyterian churches, for the most part, have blinded themselves to a great extent to the truth that the gospel proclaims salvation as union with Christ. They're guilty of that. 
And they have done that by an erroneous view of the covenant of grace itself. They have a false doctrine concerning the covenant of grace. I want now to proceed to give instruction that union with Christ, about which we have been talking, is covenantal. Union with Christ, which is fundamental in the Bible, and the very essence of salvation, is the covenant. Union with Christ is the covenant, and the covenant is union with Christ. No one can overlook and deny that the covenant is prominent in the Bible. We're talking here about a tremendously significant aspect of biblical revelation. We first read of the covenant in connection with Noah at the time of the flood. But as a matter of fact, the covenant was first revealed already in the Garden of Eden in the words of God in Genesis 3.15, spoken to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. When God put enmity or hostility between the woman, the church, and the devil, the implication was clearly that the relationship of the woman to God is that of fellowship. The devil is at enmity with the church because the church is in friendship or close communion with God in Jesus Christ. The covenant was established in the lines of generations with Abraham and his seed in Genesis 17, verse 7. And the covenant was fulfilled by Jesus Christ in all his saving ministry. For that, I refer to, Genesis, to Galatians 3 and ask you to follow up on this lecture by reading yourselves in Galatians chapter 3 which will testify that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. With regard to what this covenant actually is, it is union with Christ, and thus union with God himself. That's evident from what we may call the covenant formula. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's repeatedly in the Bible how the covenant is described. God being our God and we being God's people. That's a relationship of union. The covenant formula establishes the nature of the covenant as union and communion with Jesus Christ. Marriage is the outstanding earthly sign of that union and sign of that communion in that two living Persons become one and live together in fellowship. That represents the covenant. As the very essence of salvation, therefore, the covenant is communion of us with God in Christ and of God with us in Jesus Christ. Now, even though Reformed and Presbyterian churches have confessed the covenant, and have even confessed the covenant as a fundamental truth of Scripture, they have failed to see that the covenant emphasizes union with Christ because of their wrong doctrine of the covenant. This erroneous doctrine is that the covenant is a contract or a bargain between God and men. In this bargain, God promises to save humans on condition that they will believe in him and obey him. Now that compromises the gospel of grace, as everyone should be able to see, for that makes salvation dependent upon the sinner. If God is my God on condition that I will do this or that, my salvation by God depends on me and what I will do, whether that's believing or obeying. That doctrine, however, has been popular in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, even conservative ones, for many years. In the past, ask a Reformed or Presbyterian theologian 
what is the covenant, and he would describe it basically as a conditional contract or bargain between God and people. Today, that false doctrine is bearing bitter fruit in a heretical movement that is very popular and powerful in the North American part of the world that calls itself the federal vision. Federal, you understand, means covenant. So their theology is a theology of the covenant. And because of the teaching that the covenant is a conditional contract, this movement denies all five points of Calvinism. They themselves admit this, as well as denying justification by faith alone. Their argument or development is this. If salvation in the covenant is conditional, then none of the five points of Calvinism can be true. Neither can justification be by faith alone, but justification must be by faith and by works. Although I have incriminated Canada and the United States, Great Britain does not get off without any guilt whatsoever because this movement in North America is closely associated with the name of a popular British theologian named N.T. Wright, who is spreading this heresy throughout the British Isles and even throughout the world. This heresy, this gross heresy, is spreading because of a bad condition, a bad confession of the covenant, a bad doctrine of the covenant. If the covenant is conditional, if it's a bargain, if it's a contract that God makes with you, make it personal. I will be your God and you will be my son or daughter on condition that you do something. Believe and believe to the very end and obey and really obey perfectly because God isn't satisfied with anything less than perfection. Then all of the doctrines of the gospel of grace fall away, including justification by faith alone. We're back in the mire of Roman Catholicism and paganism. I call that to your attention and that's important, but my concern now is that the view of the covenant as contract cuts the heart out of the biblical doctrine of the covenant. A bargain is not communion. A bargain is a cold, business-like thing. It has no similarity to the warm, living, comforting reality of the covenant of grace. It is one thing to live with Christ in sweet communion, above all things precious. It's quite another thing to have a contract with Jesus Christ. I will do this for you if you will do that for me. It is high time. Now I address the Presbyterian and Reformed community in case this speech ever comes to their ears or attention. It is high time for Reformed and Presbyterian Christianity to repent of its heresy of explaining the covenant as a contract and a conditional contract at that. And it's high time for Presbyterian and Reformed Christianity worldwide to open its eyes to the treasure it has in the covenant regarding union with Christ. And what a difference this will make regarding Christian experience and the Christian life. Now we come to the application of the doctrines that I have been establishing so far. The covenant of grace is experienced by faith and by faith alone. Faith being the very bond of our union with Jesus Christ. It is a grievous error that faith is the bond of saving union with Christ, but that we experience and be assured of salvation by our works. We aren't assured of our salvation by our works. We're assured of salvation by faith. Good works are the fruit of our union with Christ, but they are not our union itself, much less the basis of that union. And that's the way it is with the two great figures that the Bible uses to describe union with Christ or the covenant. 
First of all, that of the vine and the grafted branches. That grafted in branch is not the covenant itself. The good works or fruit or grapes that that vine produces are not the bond itself, but they're the fruit of that bond. And so also is the love of a husband for his wife, the fruit of the bond of marriage and the loving submission of a woman to her husband. The good works that married people perform are not the marriage itself, but the fruit of that marriage. In the union with Christ, we experience the love of Jesus Christ for us as a wife experiences the love of her husband for her. I'll say more about this in my speech on marriage in a day or two. Here I want to emphasize that the experience of Jesus' love is an aspect, is an aspect of union with him. That is, an aspect of the covenant. You cannot have the experience of Jesus' love apart from union with him in the covenant of grace. In the union with Christ, that is the covenant, we experience all the blessings of salvation. Having Christ, we have righteousness, holiness, and all. Without having Christ, we have none of them. All the blessings of salvation are covenant blessings. That's how we ought to look at them and think of them. In that union with Christ, we also experience the assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is not something God gives us today and takes away tomorrow. Salvation is in Christ himself, with whom God unites us permanently as the branch is united to the vine as long as the vine lives, and as earthly marriages endure as long as the two shall live. If salvation were merely a matter of my decision for Christ, my salvation is highly uncertain and quite doubtful. But if my salvation is union with Christ, my salvation is everlasting and certain. We reformed believers, knowing the truth of the covenant, therefore, live at peace with regard to the all-important matter of our salvation. And in that union with Christ, we are also fearless with regard to all our life in the world. We are one with God's precious Son, what happens to him, happen, what happens to us, happens to him. And who he is guarantees who we are and will be. He is our head, we are his body, and we shall forever remain his body. He is our husband, and we are his wife. We shall forever remain his wife, so long as our husband liveth. But it's especially our expression of our union with Christ that I think is important for us Reformed Christians to take to heart. I want to conclude my speech with a brief comment about that expression of our union with Christ. I'm referring, of course, to our Christian life of holiness. I call your attention to the fact that can be overlooked that the Bible makes our union with Christ a powerful motive of our Christian life and even the standard of the Christian life. What motivates us to live the Christian life is our union with Christ. And what shows us how we ought to live the Christian life is our union with Christ. We tend to ignore this to the detriment of our Christian life. And sometimes we do that in favor of the law of God. Now I grant that the law of God is a standard of the Christian life, and I'm not weakening that truth of the place of the, Christ, of the law in the Christian life whatsoever, what I'm going to say. But I am calling attention to something that's often overlooked, and that is very important for the Christian life, and that is, when you're living the Christian life, what motivates you must be your, your union with Christ. What you don't do, and what you do do, are controlled by Union with Jesus Christ. I illustrate this with several biblical references which can be multiplied. 
The obvious instance of this is our calling to live rightly in marriage as this is exhorted in Ephesians 5. How to live in marriage is motivated by our spiritual union with Christ. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church and because Christ loves his church and in order that our behavior in marriage may witness to the love of Christ for the church. Union with Christ is the motive and standard of our marriages. Ephesians 5 does not simply say love your wife as a command of God. This is love your wife as Christ loves the church. It doesn't simply say to women, wives, be submissive to your husband, period. But be submissive to your husband as the church is submissive to Christ. It brings in union with Christ as the motive and standard of our life together in Christian marriage. Then a second instance is 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 and following. I simply inform you that the subject in that passage is the right behavior of ministers and members in the church. We have to live together in the church peaceably. We have to live together in the church in such a way that the minister is honored for his work's sake and the members live in peace with each other. And the motive for living together rightly in the church, according to this passage, is that the church is the temple of God and as much as the Spirit of God dwells in the church. The reason for living rightly in the church is not simply that to do otherwise causes painful division in the church, but the reason for living together peacefully in the church is our union with Christ by the Spirit. By virtue of our life in the Spirit, by virtue of our intimate union with Christ, we can and are called to live rightly with each other in the congregation. My third and final instance I regard as extremely powerful and important. That's the prohibition of fornication in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20. I'm not going to take the time to read that passage. I'll describe it briefly. But you might want to look that passage up on your own sometime tonight or tomorrow. That passage, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 15 through 20, is the prohibition of fornication. Quite apt for today, don't you think? Living as we do in a fornicating age, not only threatening young people, but also threatening grown-ups in their marriages. The city of Corinth was a kind of brothel. It was as taken for granted that men, married men, would visit the whores as it was that they would eat and drink. Nothing thought of. Visit the prostitute. That's what Paul is addressing in the passage, of course, forbidding fornication. But when he grounds his prohibition against fornication, he doesn't simply refer to the seventh commandment of the law of God. He doesn't say fornication is outlawed among you because God says thou shalt not commit adultery. Is that true? That's true, but that's not the motive that the apostle gives. Rather, his teaching is this. You boys and girls, you young men and young women, you men, married men and women, are united to Christ. Therefore, the members of your body, including the sexual members of your body, are united to Jesus Christ. Don't take those members of Christ are united to Christ and unite them to a whore, to a harlot, as he says. What a despicable, shameful thing. One thing to obey the rule against fornication because that's the law of God. And I don't minimize that. That law stands as the guide for our life. There's quite another power to appeal to the children of God in terms of their being united to Jesus Christ and in such a close way that the very members of our bodies are members of Christ. They mustn't be shamed and dirtied and made filthy by being united to the harlot. 
The apostle in that passage adds the truth of union with Christ explicitly. I quote, Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. End of quote. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. He lives there, not simply as the Holy Ghost, but he lives there with Jesus Christ whom he brings into your body and makes it a temple of the Holy Ghost. Fellow office bearers, parents, believers in the church, confronted with this sordid, powerful temptation of fornication, this, this must be our admonition to each other, and especially, I suppose, to the young people of the congregation. Don't forget, you're united to Jesus Christ in the fellowship of the covenant. What you do with the members of your body has a reflection upon your union with Jesus Christ. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, made instrumental in the service of Christ, and are not to be made filthy by fornication. In general, then, because of our union with Christ, we are called and enabled to live as humans in a Christ-like manner. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will feature more speeches from the 2022 British Reform Fellowship Conference in upcoming weeks. Please send any feedback or questions you may have to hope rwc at gmail.com and we will respond promptly.